0: What I suggested last time was that self-love or confidence uh, uh, need not be in a competition with uh, insight into selflessness. And that in fact, uh, is it possible that, that we can actually think about self-love and selflessness on the same continuum. At one end of that continuum might be the most kind of cruel relation we can have with ourself. And then we can move into more gentleness, more gentleness, more love with ourself. And if you take that kind of love, that affirmation, that allowance, that acceptance to its extreme, we understand something about selflessness. In both love and anatta, not self, what we're learning to do is not pick up the self as an object to be judged. We're not making the gesture of taking the self as an object to be evaluated. So this is uh, Richard Ryan and Kirk Brown, who who are psychologists and developed the kind of main questionnaire used for assessing mindfulness. And they write, the question becomes not merely how high or how low is self-esteem, but what one is doing when evaluating the self as an object. The very process of placing oneself in the role of object and then evaluating its worth is problematic. There are people who are preoccupied with their worth. They regularly appraise themselves, compare themselves to others, and struggle to ward off threats to a positive view of self. Whether such individuals come away with positive or negative conclusions, the very fact that one's esteem is in question suggests a psychological vulnerability. Optimal health is more likely when self-esteem is not a concern because the worth of the self is not at issue. Maybe you've seen how much we pick up the self as an object to be evaluated. How our practice is going, how we're doing on retreat, how much we understand, how much we've gained, what progress we've made. Many times when we ask those questions, we are picking up the self as object. And the Buddha was interested in radical forms of well-being. He was not satisfied, we can say, with uh, a good enough life. And so there is uh, beauty and so much value, so much importance in developing confidence, self-love, and even the well-adjusted self carries a burden of dukkha. Even the well-adjusted self carries a burden of dukkha. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi. Our benighted attempts to achieve security are oriented around the standpoint of self. We assume that we possess a solid core of individual being, an inherently existent ego, and thus our varied plans and projects take shape as so many maneuvers to ward off threats to the self and promote its dominance in the overall scheme of things. The Buddha turns this whole point of view on its head by pointing out that anxiety is the dark twin of ego. He declares that all attempts to secure the interests of ego necessarily arise out of clinging and that the very act of clinging paves the way for our downfall when the object to which we hold perishes as it must by its very nature. The Buddha maintains that the way to true security lies precisely in the abolition of clinging. Now, we want to, uh, the mind picks these concepts up and it tends to devolve into a kind of philosophical dialogue with ourselves. And uh, there's there are very clear kind of warnings in the suttas that's to suggest like, um, don't, don't turn this into another view. Don't uh, try to, um, (coughs) don't pick up not-self as another position. So, Tenisara Bhikkhu says, uh, even in his most thoroughgoing teachings about not-self, The Buddha never recommends replacing the assumption that there is a self with the assumption that there is no self. Instead, he goes only so far as to point out the drawbacks of various ways of conceiving the self and then to recommend dropping them. Ultimately, I don't think this is a philosophical issue at all. It's an issue... uh, It's a matter of what's here, now. And so we don't need to actually get into the thicket of metaphysical questions uh, because they they don't seem to be what liberates. Instead, we focus on, on what's here already. And we can say that um, egoic life, living on the basis of a fixed, fixated notion of who we are is very precarious. potentially any one of you can totally ruin my day. <laughs> yeah. I'm not blaming you, <laughs> I'm okay. But potentially any one of you are actually a threat. I was giving this um <clears throat> I was giving this uh, a lecture at an academic conference and the lecture was about um mental health and mindfulness and uh in the first row there was a woman who was uh just moved to tears you know and uh you know, maybe sensing, sensing the Dharma. And she was just so taken back by it and was just giving me like undivided attention. And in the back row was a gentleman who was so deep into sleep <laughs> that that his mouth was like totally open and kind of, I don't know if he was drooling, but it was (laughs) in that realm, yeah? You know? And if I live for her, I die with him. And this is the drama of egoic life. Live by the ego, die by Now, um, there's something very endearing to me about the, all the machinations of self, something very um, kind of sweet, and, and the way I, I th- it's, it's not something to be hated, though I think of it a little bit as like, um, uh, like show and tell in fifth grade, you know? And you like bring in your favorite rock or whatever it might be, and you show the class and you kind of like say like, look, look at this, look at this thing, look at me, yeah? It's very innocent actually. And of course we're trying in Identifying as this, as that, as not this, not that. We're trying to secure a kind of well-being and security, but um, you know, we can only um, we can only look good on paper. Tell you a short Dharma story, kind of very close to my heart. Um, I was teaching um, at a sangha and out in the, the East Bay area, and um, at this sangha they they read your read your bio as sometimes IMC does, before a teaching. And so my bio was being read, and Dr. Brinsilver uh, did st- studied here, trained there, you know. And uh, that guy sounded pretty good. <laughs> you know, it sounded, sounded like he had his shit together. <laughs> It was nice, you know, it was fine. It feels kind of funny, but I like, okay, sweet. But um, on this particular day, I had managed to uh, show up to teach a mindfulness class with my zipper down. <laughs> which is the cardinal Mindfulness sin. (laughs) You can't do worse showing up to teach mindfulness with your zipper down. I checked as I came in to make sure I had pants on today. So it's like, we wanna be like that bio, (laughs) but we can only look good on paper. Now, usually um, selflessness is described as a kind of mystical insight, and any time you hear teachers say things like, uh, that don't make any sense. Uh, I I think last night I said, the only noise that sound makes is love. (laughs) (laughs) What is that? When you hear stuff like that, <laughs> they're usually talking about, they're actually pointing to some mystical insight, a state of state of awareness that's that not just non-ordinary. But in a lot of the suttas, the teachings on not-self are not pointing to uh, mystical insight. They're actually more like a tool for letting go, more like a way of seeing experience that helps us let go. So in the uh, simile of the snake, it goes, uh, what do you think, monks, is uh, corporeality, bodily form, Uh, Permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Lord Buddha. And what is impermanent? Is it painful or pleasant? Painful. What is impermanent, painful, and subject to change? Is it fit to be considered thus? This is mine. This I am. This is myself. Certainly not, Buddha. Seeing this, monks, the well-instructed noble disciple becomes disenchanted with corporeality, becomes disenchanted with feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, the five aggregates, becomes disenchanted with the five aggregates. Uh, Through being disenchanted, passion fades away her or his passion having faded, she is freed. In her who is freed, there is the knowledge of freedom. And so here we see something that's um, quite ordinary in a way that we're actually learning to uh, see in this, these interrelated characteristics, dukkha, anicca, anatta, as a way of letting go more deeply. Um, this is one frame. Now, importantly, we can't really think our way into this insight. In some ways, we can't think our way into any insight. Insight bubbles up from quiet, from the continuity of attention. And so in general, when we think about, under, when we think about insights and insights into anatta, we're often thinking about the self getting better that this is a new insight for the self to have, a new dharmic possession. But importantly, uh, Ajahn Samedo said, uh, the personality is not getting enlightened. This is not something we add to who we are. This is not something we possess. This is the end of the fantasy of possessing anything. Now, uh, the mechanisms of ego are quite subtle and Ego sort of wants to take credit for everything good. And so even when the insight does arise, it's often kind of, the ego crystallizes around it, takes possession of the insight. And it becomes, the insight becomes a kind of memory. And what you get is a self that thinks it's special. I have literally found myself, essentially, bragging about how well I understand selflessness. That is sick. I am a <laughs> sick person. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just like the forces of I-amness rally around anything. Yeah? So we w- we really do want to watch how the mind picks this up. Now. Uh, I said that that the practice is about about seeing. Uh, this is not philosophy. This is about looking into what's happening here now. And so, the the philosopher I mentioned a few days ago, Dan Dennett, asked the question, "What is a self?" He writes. I will try to answer this question by developing an analogy with something much simpler, something which is nowhere near as puzzling as a self, but has some properties in common with cells. What I have in mind is the center of gravity of an object. This is a well-behaved concept in Newtonian physics, But a center of gravity is not an atom, or a subatomic particle, or any other physical item in the world. It has no mass, color, no physical properties at all, except for spatio-temporal location. It is a purely abstract object. It is, if you like, a theorist fiction. But it is a fiction that has nicely defined, well delineated and well behaved role within physics. And then he goes on to say that, that self not the is is the the center of narrative gravity. We're sure it's in there, but we have to look. Now part of what you're hearing here is, um, the self is constructed in a way. Andy Alinsky says, uh, grasping is not something done by the self, rather the self is something done by grasping. Now we we need to see this uh, for, for ourselves, we need to see What is at the center of narrative gravity? Is there something there? Is that the place from which grasping springs forth? Or is that actually an effect of grasping? Is the self the cause? Or is the self an effect? The Buddha suggests the self is an effect. Then it puts it uh, like this, our tails are spun, but for the most part, we don't spin them, they spin us. And so we look in, what is this, this sense, the center of narrative gravity? How do we actually experience that? Where, where does it feel like self resides? We have the impression that it's, it's somewhere. There's something that needs our protection, there's something behind experience that receives experience. And so we have the sense that uh, there's like the, the Matthew inside Matthew. And oh yeah, this is just my arm. This is just my my chest, and these are just this is just seeing, but somewhere at that center point of narrative gravity, I live. What we're trying to see is that uh, that se- that that apparent center point is just more experience that has the nature of impermanence that it's a kind of tangle it's a the self is a kind of um, a friction with the world the self is a a tangle of sensory experiences that creates the impression of being solid, stable, the place of our being. And it's, I love the Dennett's phrase, a center of narrative gravity, because it's so closely linked the sense of I amness with the kind of coziness of our inner dialogue, you know, how we sort of hear our thoughts and, but then at some point it's like one of those registers of thought feels like the ground of our being. It feels like uh, this is the expression of our innermost self feels like it bubbles out from the center of narrative gravity. And so, we're tasked with bringing mindfulness to the phenomena of self, of selfing. The experience, which is valid, the experience of self. we have to get quiet we have to start to get quiet enough that the array of appearances become less compelling don't become less seductive become more still And then we can start to start to sense that that self is made of the same stuff as everything else, and it's not like the this insight um, leaves us thinking that everything we thought about ourselves is true or false, it's just that all self-evaluations start to feel utterly irrelevant. Pointing at nothing. Nisargadatta says, to say I know myself is a contradiction in terms. For what is known cannot be myself. So we start to know more and more. We become more adept at stepping off the ground of I am-ness and knowing that as experience. And this brings a kind of relief, a kind of uh, fundamental alienation gets healed in that. Because the self has the effect of pulling us outside of the world. We can't help but live as if apart from nature and when we can actually infuse the experience of i-amness with enough mindfulness um, that can precipitate a kind of sense of being of re-rejoining nature of knowing body, mind, as nature, as yeah, inseparable from nature. Um, and from, from that, from that viewpoint, from that sense of a kind of centerlessness of our being. Um, the kind of attractions of the world, the possibilities for the world doesn't ha- the world becomes so much less threatening. And the sense of having to guard To stand guard at the gates of self. That totally relaxes, and we kind of can't believe how much energy was invested in manicuring the self for others and even for our for ourself. We need to, uh, because action from emptiness feels like it's, it springs out of nothing, out of, in the very spontaneous, we sort of need to learn to trust emptiness. Anything feels possible from that silence. And we, the ordinary mechanisms of planning out our lives, planning out our senses, planning out our future, that uh, isn't there. And so it's a little bit like, Life feels totally improvisational. And we have to trust that what emerges from that silence will be wholesome. Now the doorway into this insight is usually, the way it's talked about in the Vipassana world, is usually through the understanding of what Nikki talked about, a Nietzsche. That we're actually seeing the arising and passing of everything we might call self. And we see um, change at such a momentary level that the um, insubstantiality of meanness is very apparent. So anicca is usually the doorway and there is, you will notice as you settle more and more deeply, anicca has a kind of undertow. It's a kind of undertow, and it wants to, to pull you, and everything you know, into its flow. But this is one gateway, and there are others. Another kind of uh, approach, gateway of sorts, is um, simply to look for the center of one's being, and in that not finding, there is peace. That not finding may be very fleeting, but in the not finding there is peace. This is from uh, Douglas Harding who uh, okay this is from when he was thirty three and who kind of wandering in the Himalayas and spiritual seeker, and he, he describes a kind of very precipitous collapse of ordinary self-conception. He says, uh, what actually happened was something absurdly simple and unspectacular. I stopped thinking. A peculiar quiet, an odd kind of alert alert limpness or numbness came over me. Reason and imagination and all mental chatter died down. I forgot who and what I was, my name, manhood, animalhood, all that could be called mine. It was as if I had been born that instant, brand new mindless, innocent of memory. There existed only the now, the present moment, and what was clearly given in it. To look was enough. And what I found was khaki trouser legs terminating downwards in a pair of brown shoes, khaki sleeves terminating sideways in a pair of pink hands, and a khaki shirt front terminating upwards in absolutely nothing whatever, certainly not a head. It took me no time at all to notice this nothing, this hole where a head should have been, which was no ordinary vacancy, no mere nothing. On the contrary, it was very much occupied It was a vast emptiness, vastly filled, a nothing that found room for everything. Room for grass, trees, distant hills, and far above them snow peaks like a row of angular clouds riding the blue sky. I had lost a head and gained a world. It was the revelation at long last of the perfectly obvious. It was a lucid moment in a confused life history. It was naked, uncritical attention to which had all along been staring me in the face, my utter facelessness. There arose no questions no reference beyond the experience itself, but only peace and a quiet joy and the sensation of having dropped an intolerable burden. The difference between suffering a little and not suffering at all uh, is dramatic, and the self is a kind of low grade form of suffering. Now, some of these insights can be very dry. Sense of uh, the word nothingness gets used a lot. Rumi says, live in the nowhere that you come from. But um, I, I think there are some strong connections between this insight into selflessness, the centerlessness of being and love. That when we You, you, as Harding said, you are not your face. But when you know that, the image of your face breaks the heart open. See, from this perspective, the insight into selflessness is the kind of absence of clinging. And the absence of clinging is love. What else can arise from the cessation of greed and aversion? How else might one meet the world when freed of those forces? So life becomes mm-hmm. like a uh, dana. Rumi says, uh, if you come to pay your respects, even my gravestone will invite you to dance. So don't come without your drum. Let's sit for a moment. of all these words, please pick up only what is of use and leave behind all the rest.